Uh, next week is Easter. Isn't that crazy? And uh, we are... Thanks, Annie. We are using um, the, the couple of weeks leading up to Easter to think about Easter and to think deeply about Easter. I know uh, those of you that were here last week, it, it was pretty heavy. We did some pretty uh, technical stuff, some pretty... This is great. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, my lovely assistants. Uh, we did some pretty heavy stuff. And I know some of you felt like, gee, you know, what's this whiteboard thing and, and what's this putting in extra words in the, in the verses and all this stuff? This is pretty heavy going. Um, but I think it's good. We're not always going to do this kind of thing, uh, but there is, a, there is a time for really getting deeply into the Bible and just looking at some stuff in some fresh ways, right? This is good. It's helpful for us. Uh, next week, by the way, is an outreach service. You've got a flyer in your bulletin about that. So it'll be completely different. And it'll be really focused around a message uh, challenging those that have not yet made a commitment to Christ. And if you know someone in that category, it's not going to be an uncomfortable and weird service, but a great one to invite family, friends to who don't know Christ and who might just come to church at Easter. It's the C and E people we're after, Christmas and Easter. Uh, attenders, you know, if, if we can get them here, that would be great. So uh, think about that. But for, for last week and this week, we're looking at this hymn, this ancient hymn found in the Bible in Philippians chapter 2. And if you've got a Bible, pull it out, have it on your lap, flick open the pages. If you don't have a Bible, we might have some spares, which Debbie uh, can, can possibly hand out. If you don't have one, maybe stick up your hand and Debbie can have a look around and see. We'll have the words on the screen, so don't panic. But it's just good to have the, have the Bible out and be to be flicking the pages along as we go. So we're looking at this, this hymn, this ancient hymn in Philippians chapter 2 that talks about Jesus and it talks about his, his descent to, to, to crucifixion and it talks about his rising, his ascending to becoming uh, Lord over all things, which we'll look at today. But I think it would be great for us to read together again this passage um, and actually to read it together because it will give you a sense of how it was used because people used to read this stuff together. It wasn't always one person reading it to everyone else. They read it. This was worship. Remember, this is a hymn. Just like we sing these songs, this is actually, it's devotion. It's not just teaching. So let's let it be that. Let's read it. Uh, I think we've got the words on the screen. I've got the whole lot this time. So uh, here we go from verse 5. Ready? Go. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Just great language there. Wonderful worship. So we're going to look this morning at the last half of this hymn. If you were here last week, you heard the first half. If you weren't here last week, it'll be good to get the message. 
uh, to, to, to get familiar with what's happening. Or even better, you could come along to the Hub on Thursday afternoon because Sean didn't record it properly last week, so I've got to give it again to an empty room. Can you believe that? This is what happens. <laughs> what was it, a corrupted file or something? Corrupted heart, maybe. I don't know. No, he's a good man. But uh, So that was. we looked at verses 6 to... to uh, to 8, and now we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. And what you notice, or maybe you don't, but the second half of this hymn dramatically changes. Dramatically. In the first half of the hymn, uh, it's, it's downward. It's Jesus giving himself, emptying himself, humbling himself, becoming nothing. In the second half of the hymn, all of a sudden it's upbeat, it's optimistic, there's this note of triumph and majesty and victory, and it's all wonderfully positive. Also, you notice in the first half of the hymn, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus is the one doing stuff. Jesus is the one giving himself, emptying himself, humbling himself. In the second half of the hymn, who is, who is the subject? Who is the one doing the acting? God. Or God the Father, yeah, more particularly. So things change a lot. And it starts, this, this half of the hymn, it starts with the word, therefore. Whenever you see the word, therefore... You've got to go back and see what it's there for. Okay, that's the rule. So therefore always points you backwards. In this case, it points you backwards to the first half of the hymn, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, because of what's gone before, because of something that's already happened, and that thing, of course, is the emptying of Jesus, because of the self-giving love of Jesus, because of the fact that he poured himself out and humbled himself and didn't use his position to his advantage, but made himself nothing. Because It is because of those events that then God the Father does something extraordinary. Because of that, in recognition of that, God exalted him. Now, when we talk about exalted, there's that's kind of shorthand for two events. Two events are summarized in that one word. The first is resurrection. That's Jesus rising from the dead. And the second, anyone want to guess, is ascension. Jesus rising from the earth. Now you remember there was, there was quite a gap of time in there. Jesus rose from the dead and then he lived for quite a few more days, and then God took him up to heaven. So, ascension, is that A-S-C-E-N-S? Well, you guys don't even, S-I-O-N, arguing among yourselves, something like that. Um, You can see why I didn't do very well in handwriting at school. Uh, Resurrection and ascension are all encompassed in this word exaltation. So the hymn doesn't draw a distinction between those events, but it sees them as one big upward movement. From grave to heaven. The entire distance that Jesus descended, he has now ascended. Not, don't think physically, you know, up into the sky, but just the, the idea of, of back up from the grave to life and then from life to life with God again in heaven, life with the Father. God does this in recognition of what Jesus has done. It's not a reward. It's not God saying, hey, well, Jesus, you've done a great job and here's a reward because uh, of what you've done. It's really a recognition. This exaltation is God's yes to what Jesus did. It's God looking at Jesus and saying that is the perfect expression of divinity. That's exactly what it means to be God. That's exactly what divinity looks like. Emptying, humbling, giving, abnegating oneself. 
not clutching onto your position. That's what it looks like. So this is the recognition of what Jesus has done. Now God the Father exalts Jesus up to the highest place, heaven, and gave him the name that is above every name. What's the name? It's not Jesus, because he already had that name. I think it's Lord, down here. So name connects to Lord. God raises him up and he gives him, isn't it interesting that Jesus is given a name he didn't used to have? You know, God is the same yesterday, today and forever, and yet Jesus gets a name. He is given this name Lord that he didn't previously have. It, it's quite clear, it happened when Jesus rose from the dead. God gave him the name Lord. And then... What does that mean? It pushes us into the future that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the way Jews thought of the universe, by the way. Heaven, earth, under the earth. The grave, the Sheol, the grave, the place you go when you die. In those three realms, every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is now Lord. He has been made Lord. He has been made kurios, Lord. This statement here, not in English, but in the original language, is the earliest and greatest worship confession of the church. The best confession we've ever had. The heart of worship is this wonderful affirmation that Jesus Christ is Lord. It just feels good to say it. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's fantastic. In the Greek... The words are actually mixed up. They usually put the most important word first. Word order is critical in Greek. So in Greek, kurios Jesus Christos. The Lord is Jesus the Christ. The Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus Christ. Should we say it in Greek? Wouldn't that be great? I think we've got the words up here. So I've even put pronunciation guide here. Kurios Jesus. Don't worry about the S maybe at the end of soup. Just Jesus Christos. Let's say it. Go. Kurios Jesus Christos. And again. Kurios, Jesu, Christos. That is how our brothers and sisters thousands of years ago made their good confession of faith. That confession got people killed in the first century. Those words, literally saying that in the first century, people lost their lives for it. Kurios, Jesu, Christos. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why it's in the hymn. It's the early worship of the early church. Jesus Christ is Lord. So this is what's going to happen one day. It's all future tense now. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. This phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, it's really the heart of this whole part of the hymn. And so I want to just unpack it a little bit because every word is just loaded with meaning. Jesus, that much we know. And remember, when we're talking about Jesus now, we're thinking of Jesus the man, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the tradesman from Nazareth who walked the roads of Palestine, the earthy Jesus, the human Jesus, that Jesus, flesh and blood Jesus. The hymn puts a very particular word beside Jesus, this word Christos or Christ. It's a translation from the Hebrew Messiah. And Messiah just means anointed one one who's set apart, one who's chosen by God. You could be chosen or anointed by God in the Old Testament by virtue of being a priest or a prophet, but there was a very particular figure 
that the Old Testament pointed toward who would be not just a Messiah or a, an, an anointed one, but the coming Messiah was promised to David. You'll have a son who will sit on your throne and he will rule over the house of Israel forever and ever and ever. And Jews began to develop this expectation that there would arise one within Israel who would be a king like David, but greater, who would recruit an army and be a military ruler and throw off the shackles of foreign occupation and establish Israel as a military and political superpower over the entire known world. That is who they believed Messiah was going to be. The idea of Messiah is inherently tied up with the idea of a king. So when you see the words Christ Jesus, what you want to think is King Jesus. That's how people would have heard that phrase. In the same way you you think of King David, King Solomon, King Saul, King Jesus. That's the connotation that phrase has. He's a king greater than those other kings, one who would eclipse them. Not a superhuman, floating-in-the-sky, divine, Trinitarian figure. No, 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 that's not what they expected at all. They didn't expect this person to be anything other than human. But a great king, a great leader who would free Israel and vanquish her enemies. And this hymn, Paul, if he wrote it, says, that king is this guy over here, Jesus. He is the Christ. Might not look like it, might not act like it, but he is the Christ, and his throne is a cross. And from there he rules over all things. Jesus is the rightful king. It's a very Jewish idea because in the first instance he is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. That's why that was hung above his cross when he died. He is the one who carries the hopes and the aspirations and the expectations of Israel. He's the one who completes Israel's story, who brings it to a surprising conclusion. He's the one who reaches the climax of this incredible narrative right through the Old Testament. He's the king that Israel's always looked for and longed for. And this is why the tragedy of the Gospels is that his own people don't recognize him. And his own people turn away from him because he has come as the king of the Jews in the first instance. And it's remarkable when you think of this idea of King Jesus that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has the audacity in some of his letters to put another word beside Christ, the word crucified. Which, if you are a Jew, is utter blasphemy. To put that word crucified beside Christ, because a king, this king, is not crucified. This Messiah, they believed, would be a ruler. He would would be a victor. He would be a conqueror. He would not be crucified by his enemies. He would destroy them. And yet Paul comes along and says, we preach Christ, the king, crucified. Utterly scandalous to the Jews. Completely moronic to the Greeks because it doesn't fit any of their categories. For a Jewish person, if you are the Christ, you cannot be crucified because a crucified man is cursed by God. And yet Paul says, you're absolutely right, he was. He was cursed. He took the curse for us, and he's transformed it and made it into blessing. That's why he's the king. Not the kind of king we were expecting, but he is King Jesus. He's Christ Jesus. So when you hear that phrase, Christ Jesus, think King Jesus. And in the first instance, think Jewish idea. King of the Jews. And then the hymn goes on, puts another word beside Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just the Christ, he's also the Lord. He's also Kurios, Lord. 
Now, if you're living in the first century, within the Roman Empire, the word Lord, this word kurios, it, it was a bit like sir. could be used of any social superior. You might call your boss kurios. You might call the head of a family kurios. But as you move up the social ladder, there is one person in the empire who ultimately takes this name in its strictest and highest sense. And it is Caesar. Caesar Nero it was at the time, one of the most ruthless of all the Caesars when Philippians was written. He is the ultimate Lord. And when you call Caesar Lord, it's not just like saying John Key is Prime Minister. It's not like just saying you are, you are the guy who's in charge of the government. It is this sweepingly expansive title that means universal reign and rulership and rightful claim and authority over all created things. That's how big this term is. Kurios means you have unrivaled, unchallenged ownership, lordship, dominion over everything in the known world, in the entire world. It's not like you are the head of a parliament, you are even the head of just one country or province, you are the Lord over all things, appointed by God to oversee. This is the idea of Caesar. And if somebody else came along claiming to be Lord, they generally ended up on a cross, which is exactly what happened to Jesus. They generally ended up at the wrong end of a Roman sword. It's interesting because you and I, when we talk about Jesus as Lord, it's, a very, it's quite private, isn't it? Do you see what's happened in modern Christianity? This phrase has become a very personal, private, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. It's, all, it's me, it's just, it doesn't go any further. It's me, my Lord, my Savior. It's vertical. Or we might as a church confess Jesus as Lord. But that kind of thing doesn't get you killed. And that's not what the early Christians were confessing. Yes, Jesus is my Lord and our Lord, but when they took that idea on their lips, they were making a bigger claim. They were saying Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of those who don't know him. He's Lord of Caesar. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. He is not the one who ultimately has rightful claim over all things. One day even Caesar will bow his knee to Jesus. Jesus is Lord over politics. He's Lord over economics. He is Lord over the legal system. He's Lord over nations. He's Lord over the earth. He's Lord over the cosmos. He's Lord over every single human being, whether they confess him as Lord or not. See, you and I don't make Jesus Lord. God made him Lord. What we do is we confess him as Lord. Or, or, or we should. What we do is come under his Lordship. So we've got to stop saying, have you made Jesus Lord? I mean, we know what we mean, but it's, a, it's not a great way of saying it because Jesus has been made Lord by God the Father. He, he is Lord with or without us. And he has this incredible rightful claim over all things. Think for a minute what it was for the Apostle Paul who's writing this. Paul, do you know where he's writing this from? A prison cell. Do you know why he's there? For political subversion for claiming exactly this kind of thing. He's on trial for his life. Do you know where he is? Like where the prison cell is? In Rome. The centre of the empire. He's living in the same city as Caesar. Nero's down the road. Paul's in a prison cell, already on trial for sedition. He's writing to his friends in Philippi. You know what Philippi is? A Roman colony. Fiercely loyal to Rome and Caesar. And Paul says, by the way, Jesus is Lord. 
you see what a dangerous statement this is? Do you see why it can be so offensive? Why it can be so gutsy to say, Jesus is Lord. If you were living in the empire, once a year you had to, by law, go and burn a pinch of incense before the authorities and say, Caesar is Lord. They didn't really care who you worshipped the rest of the time, to be honest. But you had to once a year appear before the magistrates, burn the incense and say, Caesar, Caesar, Curios is Lord. And it's the one thing Christians couldn't do because they confess that only Jesus has that claim. So Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of the Jews. But beyond that, he is the world's true ruler. He is Lord. He is the one who has claim over all things. And there's one final step that this hymn goes to, even above all of these, and it's in the same word, kurios, Lord. This phrase here, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament. The hymn is actually borrowing some language here from Isaiah 45. Let me just read you. You don't have to turn there. Just have a listen to this. Isaiah 45 is where this comes from. And in Isaiah 45, the whole idea is about God being sovereign, God being Lord. It says in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, here's the phrase, before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the Lord alone a deliverance and strength. So the whole idea is that God doesn't share his glory with anyone. That God, Yahweh alone, is the Lord. This is why uh, Jewish people to this day, morning and evening, will take on their lips the, the words of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one God. He is the Lord. There is no other. This is what we call monotheism. One God. They believe this strictly and fiercely. So what an incredible thing that whoever wrote this hymn takes that phrase, which talks about the, the Lord being God, and applies it to Jesus. That they end up saying, one day every tongue will confess, acknowledge, and every knee will bow to God, but who they're actually going to be acknowledging, who they're actually going to be bowing down to, is this Jewish tradesman, is this Jesus. Isn't it an extraordinary thing that in in the Isaiah version of this, God doesn't share his glory with anyone? And here he is, sharing it with Jesus. And it pushes you towards this conclusion, which was uncomfortable for some people that would have read this hymn originally, that Jesus must ultimately not just be the world's ruler, but he must be equated with God himself. Because in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, only God had that name. Only God was Lord. Only Yahweh is ever called Lord. And so if one day every knee is bowing down to Jesus, that must mean that Jesus is Lord. And this is not two different gods, this is somehow mysteriously all one God. And this is where you get started thinking about the Trinity, that there's actually one person, but now Jesus is equated with God. That he is the same as what the very first verse of this hymn proclaimed, he is in very nature 
God. And to confess that Jesus is God, to confess that Jesus is Lord, it doesn't take glory away from God because God made Jesus Lord. God the Father was the one who exalted him and who gave him the name. So when you and I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, we're not flying in the face of the Old Testament. We're not disagreeing with that. We're saying the two are one. Jesus and God the Father, they're ultimately one. And we're confessing that. And that actually brings incredible glory to God when we do that. So when you step back from it, let me just finish with this final reflection on on the whole thing, this whole hymn that we've looked at. What it actually gives you is a way of telling the whole story from beginning to end. Because it starts with Jesus before he came to earth, the one who was in very nature God. And at some point he chooses not to use that for his own advantage, but to pour himself out, to die on the cross, to give himself away. In recognition of this, God raises him from the dead, exalts him to the highest place, makes him Lord, puts all things under his feet, all things in submission to him. And therefore, finally, we get to the future that one day every knee will bow, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day every voice in all of creation will join with our voices in making the good confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is God. And you actually get right back to the beginning of the hymn, that Jesus is in very nature God. It's one big circle. And I think, by the way, that this picture of that day when all of creation joins in with this confession. It's not just Christians. And it's not going to be just people who have chosen Jesus in this life. I don't think that means everybody's going to be saved, but it means that even those who walk away from God in this lifetime, one day they will, albeit reluctantly, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, even as they're being led away to separation from him. That's not a very comfortable reality, but it means that one day there will be this incredible dawning, this acknowledgement, this recognition that Jesus is Lord, even by those who reject him in this lifetime. And for those who choose him now, For those who can say these words and mean them now, the future is so much brighter because we look forward to the day when Jesus will reign over all things and all creation will finally be brought into full submission under his feet when there'll be no more death, dying, weakness, pain, infirmity, sickness, anything. Jesus will be Lord over all. And all the so-called lords of our world will just vaporize and will be no more. All the gods that we tend to bow down to, and don't just think statues and idols, the gods that we make Lord in our lives, gods of consumerism, lords of materialism, the lord of individualism, all of these lords will one day be shown for who they truly are, fake, inferior counter, counterfeits to the one true Lord who sits upon his throne. This should fill us with confidence in the, in the present. This should fill us with courage for those who are going through difficulties, knowing that Jesus is Lord, that he is even now reigning and ruling from heaven with God the Father. He is in charge of all things. All things are in his hand. He's working all things out. And one day he is going to bring it all to an end. And we cannot prejudge what that conclusion is finally going to look like because it's going to blow us away. And it should encourage us in the presence as we worship God simply with our lives and our lips and our actions in the present, that we do so in anticipation of that great and glorious day when one day every single knee will bow, every single tongue will acknowledge what we already believe and already live and already understand. Kurios, Jesus Christos.
The Lord is Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just affirm that this morning, that you are Lord and God. Jesus, you sit enthroned above all things. Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord, that you are the Christ, the one who came to complete Israel's story, and you are the Lord, the world's true ruler, and the one who is ultimately God himself, revealed in the flesh. I thank you, Jesus, that we don't make you Lord, but you are Lord, regardless of what we do or don't do. You are Lord. Even now, even this moment, you are Lord of all, and we humbly and gladly and willingly bring ourselves under your lordship. We choose to acknowledge it. And we think of areas of our lives maybe that we haven't acknowledged your lordship. We haven't allowed you to reign and rule as we should have. And our desire is simply that you would be lord of our lives as you are lord of all creation. I thank you for this wonderful affirmation found here in your word that Jesus Christ is lord. And we thank you for that wonderful day when our chorus will be joined with a multitude saying exactly the same thing. We look forward to that day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.